Well, hello, Church on the Church of the Red Door and our online community. Uh, I can't imagine that it's Easter and we're still in my office, but uh, that's just the way it is. I was thinking, I, I wish behind me we had a choir and and I had a cellos and and violins and harps, and I, I wish we could uh, display the kind of glorious music that the, an occasion like this deserves. But alas, it's just me in my office and you sitting wherever you are sitting watching this. And, uh, but I got to tell you, I think we're going to have a glorious time this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking obviously about the resurrection. There is no more single event in all of human history that, if true, is more significant than the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, his death was significant for us who love him, uh, clearly because it atoned for our sins, but his resurrection validated everything he had ever said. And so this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to go back. We're going to kind of merge a lot of the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And I think it's going to be exciting. So let's just pray right now. Uh, pray wherever you are uh, watching this that the Lord would significantly speak to us and myself included through this as we unpack this a little bit. And uh, so if you wouldn't mind, just allow me to open us in prayer. Father, we thank you. This is a day that's being celebrated all over the globe. Lord, uh, Angels longed to look into this plan. Uh, they were, it was hidden from them for a long time, Lord, but now it's been revealed through Christ and your resurrection proved it. It's extraordinary. If true, again, it's the most significant thing in all of human history. Lord, we're asking that you would be with us today. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, Lord, to speak to us. Some of this may not may not be able to be absorbed by everybody because everybody's in a different place in their journey but lord that you would speak to each of us in a very unique way and this would be the most significant um, passover slash easter celebration that we've ever had in our lives lord we're going to need your holy spirit to do that in jesus name amen amen well randy thanks for the introduction and now uh, we're going to press on into the word here uh, i'm entitling today the six signs i want to explain what that means the, six, the three of those signs were the three signs that Jesus was sent by God into the world. And then the second three signs are going to be the three signs that are uh, confirming that God has sent us, his temple, back into a hurting world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bible, uh, I want you to go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 4. If you'll remember, Exodus chapter 3 was the burning bush, that moment that Moses has an encounter. Many believe, and I happen to be one of them, that this was a pre-incarnate Jesus, the, the angel of the Lord that was in this bush, and yet the bush wasn't consumed. Many of you will know the story, and we're going to go back. It's actually at the very beginning of what you Church of the Red Door folks have been understanding to be the Exodus template. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning and we're going to begin to read. So I want you to go to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to read, I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to start to unpack this. I think this is going to explode in your mind. I think it's going to be a very exhilarating morning for you, and probably going to add to the celebratory feelings that you may already have about the resurrection of Jesus. So Exodus 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Moses said, and he's speaking to God, because God has already told him, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to release my people, the, the slaves, the Hebrew slaves that would have been in, in, captive, uh, uh, in captivity for about 400 years in Egypt. He says, what if, Moses says, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? 
For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. In other words, you've not been sent by God. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, well, it's a staff. And he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses, kind of a comic relief here, fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now verse 6, and the Lord, Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. And so he put his hand in his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, it, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, speaking to Moses, again, this is God speaking to Moses, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even those two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. Now, you've got to understand that these were strange things. I mean, Moses is saying, well, okay, you're wanting me to do something that's clearly impossible. Who am I? I I'm a wandering nomad for the last 40 years. Now I'm being called to go back into Egypt, speak to the most powerful uh, man on the planet, uh, considered to be a god by the, the most powerful uh, nation on the planet, and I'm just supposed to tell him that his entire workforce, his entire slave force, uh, let him go because my God, the God of my forefathers, uh, said, release my people. Uh, how are they going to believe this? And then the Lord does something very unique. He says, here are three signs. Three signs, Moses, that I've clearly sent you. Now, what you've got to understand, in the, in the beginning, I told you the three signs that Jesus was going to perform uh, to validate his ministry. But you've got to understand that Moses is a prefiguring of Jesus. And so the three signs that Moses is going to uh, create or uh, play out before, uh, before Pharaoh are the very three signs that Jesus was going to walk through in his ministry. And I believe this with all my heart, folks. I believe that Jesus had studied the scriptures, understood the Mosaic template that he was walking in as a type of Moses, and that he knew at a very early age he knew, now this, is, this gets a lot of theological debate about what he knew and how he learned and all those things. All I know is that the Bible says Jesus was tempted like we are and yet without sin. So I think he was tempted not to read his Bible, not to spend time in the Word, not to know these things. But Jesus knew, I think through the reading of Moses and the story and understanding the Torah, that this was exactly, these three signs were going to be the three significant signs his ministry was going to uh, uh, to create to prove to Pharaoh, a type of Satan, uh, to Satan, uh, excuse me, Satan, a type of, that Pharaoh was a type of, and that they were going to go in, and this was going to be exactly, he's going to walk right through what Moses was walking through. And I'm going to show you how that's, how that's the case. So here's Jesus going to be validating his kingdom by walking right into what Moses had been called by God to walk into. Okay, so now let's, uh, let's think about it like this. All right, so if that's the first sign, the second sign, third sign, let's start with the third sign and then work back to the first. Now, the third sign was blood, uh, that there's going to be blood involved here. And if you think about it, 
Jesus is birthing a new kingdom. He, he tells Nicodemus in John 3 that a man must be born again. There's never something that's birthed into reality that doesn't involve blood. Now think about that for a minute. Now blood clearly atones for our sin, but there's always blood involved when something's being birthed. Jesus is birthing a new kind of humanity called his temple. And so Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says simply this, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of these sins. Okay, and then 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we have this picture. Uh, that Here's one of the signs. Blood, there will be blood. Blood is going to have to be spilled. And so Jesus, and God told Moses, you know, just pour out your pour out that water, and it, then it turned to blood. It's a very interesting thing that he had him, had him do, very specifically. And then you'll know that Moses, one of the signs he showed Pharaoh was he turned the Nile, the water, into blood. Very interesting. So that was one of the signs. The second sign, or the middle sign, I should say, was symbolized by leprosy. Now, you've got to understand that sin is uh, very often uh, seen as leprosy, and leprosy is sin. It's kind of a, it's a metaphor for sin. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus is doing a cleansing of leprosy, if you will, both literally one of the signs, Jesus cleansed the lepers, but also in terms of cleansing us from our sin. So Je Moses walked into this, Jesus is walking into it. Moses walked into this thing of blood, turning the Nile into blood. Jesus spilled his own blood out on the ground, and then you'd see dried, you would have seen dried blood at the foot of the cross. Now the third sign, the first sign that was given to Moses, but our third that we're looking at, this is, gets really exciting because this is the crux of what I want to get to that spills right over into what it means to have Passover, Easter, uh, this, this day that we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. What is that in your hand? So G Moses says, what's the signs? How, how am I going to prove myself to Pharaoh? And God's response is, well, what is that in your hand? What have you got in your hand there? And so Mo Moses is thinking, what is he talking about? I mean, I've got, well, I've got my staff that helped me walk here all the way from, you know, the wilderness here to Egypt. It's a long road, so I've got this staff. And then what does he tell him to do? He says, throw it to the ground. And so Moses, he's here at the burning bush, throws it to the ground. And we read here in Exodus 4, and it turned to a, into a serpent. And, and Moses fled from it. And then so... God simply says, Moses, okay, reach down, pick it up, and take it again here, take your serpent. And he was afraid to pick it up, but he grabbed it by its tail, and then it turned back into a staff. Very interesting. What, what is God, here's our question, what is God trying to communicate, not only to Moses, and what will be the, one, of the last, one of the first signs that he, he performs for Pharaoh, but there's a deeper meaning here, folks, and it's powerful. So I want you to take you to John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. This is a passage many of you will be very familiar with. 
this is where Jesus is talking about himself as being the good shepherd. He uses some very interesting language, and I think he's using the exact language that he understands will be his lot, his very call by the Father to come to the earth and to save the earth, and he's going to understand. He's going to unpack it here. Let's read verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, and I know my own, and my own know me. He says, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I have other sheep. He says, which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, now listen to this, so that I may take it again. In other words, I'm going to throw my life down, it's kind of the language he's using, and, I, and then, but I'm going to be able to take it up again. And then he goes on to say, no one's take it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I choose to lay down my life. I have authority to lay it down and catch this, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, here's my take on this. I think the very sign for which God first tells Moses, this is the sign, take your staff, throw it to the ground, and then go pick it up again and take it again to yourself. I think Jesus knows exactly this, and he knows what what God is speaking to and through Moses is actually his call on his life. He's going to take his own life. He's going to throw it down on his own initiative. He's the staff in this case, right? He's both Moses, he's the staff, he's the blood, he's, he's the lamb, he's, he's all these things. I'm going to throw my own life down and it's going to turn into a serpent. Now, what does that mean? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he became sin on our behalf. He became like the, the serpent is always a picture of Satan. He, Jesus knew he was going to take his life, throw it to the ground, or take it, uh, throw it to the ground, be crucified. But then he had the authority to take it up again. And so that Moses, a picture of Moses is Moses is throwing his own life down. It becomes sin. And, but then he has the authority to reach down and take it by the tail and take it up again. Now, I think that's what the sign is here. It's Jesus' death, burial, but it's his resurrection. It's the fact that he has the power. Folks, catch this. He has the authority and the power to lay it down on his own initiative and to take it up again. I think that's what's being played out here as one of the signs in Exodus chapter 4. Now, if we press on that's in a similar way, once again, one Mo, once Moses gets to Pharaoh's court, we get an added to dimension to this. And this is, again, I, this is how I read this. This is powerful. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, this was already a sign that he had showed Moses to perform in front of Pharaoh. But in this case, it's Aaron's rod. Now, I've asked, what does that mean? Why would it be Moses? Moses was a prophet. The Bible's very clear. Moses was a prophet. Aaron was a priest. So first it was take the staff and throw down the, the prophet's staff. And then it was, now this time, rather than taking your staff, I want you to take Aaron's staff and throw it down. Aaron was a priest. Now, what we know is that the prophets had very, very far in the future seen that it would be, Jesus would be both a king, but he would also be a prophet 
and a priest. And I think the reason he takes two different staffs is depicting what this Jesus life would be. He was both prophet and priest. And so now he takes Aaron. He says, take Aaron's uh, rod. Verse 10 says, so Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers and and they also, the magicians of Egypt, they did the same thing with their secret arts for each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, I used to think as a kid, as I would watch Cecil B. DeMille's movie, I rented it the other day, uh, right over here on my computer, I watched some of it. I've watched that, I don't know, a hundred times if I've watched it once. And I always wondered, well, how can they do? He's performing the sign. How can the, the, the magicians and the, art, the magic arts guys, how can they bring their, how come God allowed their staffs to turn into serpents? Well, clearly it was spiritual authority that they were dealing with and Satan has power, but I was thinking, that seems unreasonable. Well, I'll tell you why I think that is. I think what's being depicted here is that when Jesus did lay down his life and he, the curse was placed on him, and he became a serpent, it looked like an incredible defeat. But here's what happened. It, what looked like a defeat was actually his serpent. When his staff that became a serpent swallowed these other serpents, and it was a picture clearly of what the New Testament, I believe, is talking about. Look at Colossians 2.15. says, When he, Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So Jesus, it was always, the plan was always that, yeah, the curse was going to be placed on him. He was going to die our death that we deserved. But in that, there was going to be triumph and he was going to swallow up Satan and his works. And that's what the Bible says as well. The very purpose for Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purposes, as I just quoted, to destroy the works of the devil. Look, look, again, what looked like a defeat, throw the staff down. Now this time it's the priestly staff. Throw the priestly staff down and it turns into a serpent. How strange. And then it swallows up. Look, this was a picture of Jesus' death was going to conquer was going to conquer Satan. I believe that with all my heart. And I think Jesus knew this. I think he had studied it as a young boy, knew the Torah, probably had it memorized, even though he is the word. I mean, we know that, but he was fully man, had it memorized and understood that he was going to walk in and his very ministry was going to be the performing of these three signs. He was going to, first of all, he was going to, he was going to be cleansed. He was going to cleanse people. He was going to shed his blood. He was going to, he was going to cleanse the nations so that they could come to him. And how's he going to do it? He was going to do it by throwing down his life and then taking it up again, which is again the resurrection. So let's do this now. Let's let's follow that staff on into the future. I know that sounds funny, but we're going to follow. What happened to Aaron's staff? Strange, isn't it? What happened to that staff? And and if Jesus proved that he was the sent one through these things, uh, what was going to be the distinguishing characteristics of us? So the three signs of Jesus was that he was going to spill his blood, he's going to lay down his life, he's going to be able to take it up again, and through that he was going to cleanse the nations. Now, here's my, here's, my, here's my thought here. If we are now going to be sent, as Jesus was sent, 
back in to the world uh, as his church, the very things that we're going to find in the future tabernacle, in the heart of the tabernacle, we're going to find in the heart of his people. These are going to be the three signs that God is in fact sending us back into a hurting world. Now, let me explain what I mean by all this. Okay, so Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 gives us a picture. Now, this is the very last book of the Bible. It gives us a picture of this heavenly picture, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very, uh, it grabs you. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? Now, we know what's in the, the, the heartbeat of the tabernacle uh, was, this wandering tabernacle was, in fact, the very heart of it was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Revelation 1st, 11:19 shows us that the Ark was there in this heavenly place. It says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a, and a great hailstorm. So what we can see here, folks, is we can see that anytime you get near the tabernacle, especially the Ark of the Covenant, Flashes of lightning, it's the presence of God. That It sounds like here, these flashes of lightning and thunder and all that is exactly recreating the scene at Sinai when God comes down on the top of the mountain and meets with Moses. It's a similar picture. And so it's the, it's the very picture of God's presence. Now, we know that that was in the tabernacle and that was in the Ark of the Covenant. Every time the Ark of the Covenant was around, we knew, and other nations knew it too, there was power in that Ark of the Covenant because it was representative of the God's very presence in the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting is that the New Testament shows us what, well, what was in the Ark. What was Moses told to put in the Ark? Because it's very instructive for us. And these three signs, if they're in you as a follower of Jesus, it, is a, it validates that you are now the very heartbeat of God's temple. Now, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. It says, Behold, the second veil, uh, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a gold, golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered by all sides with gold. Now, what was in the covenant? What was in the Ark, excuse me? It says, In which was a golden jar holding the manna. So manna was in there. Aaron's rod, which budded, that's interesting because there's that staff again. We're following the staff. Now it's in the wilderness with them. And the tables of the covenant. Okay, so what was in the ark? The ark is the heart of the temple. Now what the New Testament says is the church is the temple. You and, and I individually are temples, both individually, collectively as a local church, and then globally, we're the temple. So the heartbeat of the original temple that you could see with your own hands, this Ark of the Covenant was in the heartbeat of it, and this is what was in it. So I'm, I'm suggesting to you that what was in that Ark of the Covenant needs to be in his followers, Jesus' followers. Now, what does that mean? It has to be in you, okay? So Jeremiah 31, first, we're gonna see that the table, tables of the covenant were inside the Ark, the Ark being our heart. Okay, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they won't be teaching each other again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they're going to all know me, from the least to the greatest, and I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, what we're getting here is that Jeremiah is looking 600 years into the future. He said there's going to be a new kind of a, an arrangement. It's no longer going to be a temple-driven, literal Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be something new. He couldn't describe it other than to say it's going to be a new covenant. And part of that is I'm going to be taking the law, rather than having the Ten Commandments inside the Ark, somehow he's going to be writing it on the hearts of people. And so we don't need these Ten Commandments of stone anymore. In fact, we don't even know, we don't have access to those anymore. We don't know where they are. Uh, you could, I'm telling you, if you could get a hold of them, you could get a pretty good price on eBay. So here they are, and we don't even know where these stones, tablets are. Where are they? Well, I'll tell you where they are. They're right here. As a follower of Jesus, he begins to write his law, his commandments on my heart, and he gives me the desire and the ability than to walk that out. That's what Jeremiah has seen. So what it was in the ark? Well, the, these, these laws, right? These tables of the covenant were in the ark. Well, they should be in, in my, if I'm the temple and my heart is the ark of the covenant, then they should be in my heart as well. Well, his are. And that's exactly what Jeremiah was seeing here. His laws written on our hearts. Number two, there was manna here. Well, what is, what is the manna? Well, Jesus claimed in John chapter six to be the manna that's come down out of heaven. It's a powerful picture. It's Jesus is the word, he's the manna. And so because of that, when Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, because I'm the manna that's come down out of heaven in John six, what he's really saying is I want you to eat my words. Everything that I say, my words are spirit and they're life. And so if, if you're eating these words today, then what you're doing is you're ingesting the very life of God. You're ingesting the manna, if you will, and that's got to be in your heart. And that's exactly what Psalm 119 verse 11 says. The psalmist sees this. It says, your word I have treasured in your heart. The manna, uh, the Jesus word, the manna. Uh, your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I wouldn't sin against you anymore. It's this cleansing. It's this process. So the second thing that was literally in the ark was manna, and this needs to be in your heart now, is the words of Christ. Do you feed on his words? Do you live on his words? That's the question. Now it's gonna get, now it gets really exciting because now we get to this, this third thing, this Aaron's rod, but notice it said, but Aaron's rod had budded. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what is this all about? I, I, I'm not, I'm struggling to understand what the budding has to do with anything. Well, the staff first, if you'll remember, the staff was thrown to the ground. It turned, we're following the staff now, right? It was thrown to the ground. It became a serpent and it ate up, destroyed the other serpents that were there. And we said a minute ago that the picture was, Jesus was, it was a picture of Moses laying, laying down his own law, laying down his staff, which was a picture of his life, was going to become the curse uh, for us, but through the process was going to conquer Satan by swallowing up these other serpents. And so number one, the staff becomes sin and destroys, but number two, and this is what we're celebrating today, 
it's it budded. Now you gotta understand if you take a if you take a staff or a stick, it was just a stick, and you cut it off from the branch, and it's a branch, you cut it off from the vine, what's gonna happen? It's gonna die. But all of a sudden, and we see this in number 17, uh, God was proving that that it was gonna be through Aaron, that Moses, he was defending Moses, and it was everybody bring their staffs, but the one that buds, that's that's gonna prove in number 17, and that's exactly what happened. It budded. And then Moses said, well, put that in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, it's a clear picture that not only was it thrown to the ground, not only did it become sin, not only was it taken up by Christ, but then it, it came to life again. I mean, the picture of the staff coming to life again is exactly what, gosh, it's what we're celebrating today. We're, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus has emerged triumphant. He's not dead anymore. And, and, and the reality of that in the believer is Christ's resurrected life as typified by this staff budding is now in our heart. Our heart is the Ark of the Covenant now in the center of our temple, which is our body. The, it's in there, that resurrection life. The fact that Jesus was raised means that, that we're gonna be raised from the dead. We're not just gonna go off. And I was spending time talking to one of our precious people and he, he believes that, you know, the cancer's encroaching, it's moving closer, and his time to maybe to go be, unless the Lord heals him, was, is, is growing ever near. And I'm like, look, I know this is discouraging, but at the same time, it's exhilarating. You're about to get a brand new body, man. I, you don't have to die with this old body. I mean, this is not just kind of some spiritual thing where our, uh, our spirit goes away without any kind of body or anything. Paul's very clear that our bodies, we're going to have a brand new body, unlike the old body. You know, we struggle in our culture to even be able to imagine a resurrected body, something that's dead coming back to life. You know, N.T. Wright, in one of his great <clears throat> works, he, he wrote, uh, surprised by hope. Listen to what he says about our culture. This is a Western culture these days. And it's important that we understand our physical bodies are part of what we're talking about, not just our spirit rising somewhere. And, and so, No, Jesus came back in a physical body. His, his disciples were able to touch his hands. Thomas says, I won't believe unless I touch the very nail-scarred hands. And he did. And he put his fingers there, and, and Jesus ate food with them, his disciples. There was a body there. N.T. Wright says this, Westerners are called to make a huge leap of the imagination. Maybe that's you today. It's, you're struggling to imagine that your body can come up out of the ground and be given a new body. It says, we've been uh, buying our mental furniture, he says, for so long in Plato's factory, and a lot of the Greek uh, philosophers, that we've come to take for granted a basic ontological contrast between spirit in the sense of something immaterial and matter in the sense of something material or solid or physical. We think, we know that solid objects are one sort of thing and then ideas or values or spirits or ghosts or something like that is a whole other thing. Some people imagine on a day like today, why are they not celebrating? Because they think, well, okay, maybe my spirit goes on. You can hear anybody say that. Maybe the idea of me, people put, uh, put their names on buildings. They try to get things erected in their name so their, the spirit or the idea of their life goes on. I'm going to tell you, that does not make me celebrate today. That does not get me going. The reason I'm all fired up is because, no, Jesus 
resurrection meant a physical resurrection for us. He goes on to say, Paul's point here is actually this. He says it wasn't so even the dominant cosmology of his day, which was Stoic rather than Platonic. Paul is making his Corinthian readers think in new patterns, and he has the same, it has the same effect on us. What Paul is asking us to imagine, and I would say, even though he wrote this 2,000 years ago, he's, he's still asking us to imagine that it, that it is there that we will be made uh, a new physicality which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. It will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body as our present body is more substantial or touchable than a disembodied spirit. We sometimes speak of someone who's very ill as being a, a shadow of his former self. But if Paul is right, and I and, and I obviously I believe I know he is, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. That self, that person, will be when the body that God has waiting in heaven in the heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure, put on over this present one or over the self that will still exist after bodily death. What he's saying is, just like we would look at somebody in the last days and say, just a shell of his former self. Well, the new body that God's going to give us, they're going to look at the body that I'm in right now and go, he's just a shell of his former self. It'll be something similar to that. It's going to be a glorious body. It won't be subject to disease, certainly not the coronavirus. It won't be subject to cancer or pain. The Bible says there'll be no more tears. This is what we're celebrating, folks. And I've got to tell you, you say, well, I don't know if I want a real physical body and, and all that kind of thing. And I didn't like my body that much. And I was like, let me tell you something. I need my body. I feel like a, in some ways a disembodied spirit here, especially with you. I'm not able to, to hug you, to see you, to, to grab your hand, to, to give someone some encouragement, to pray with somebody. You know, that's all been stripped for us over these last weeks. It makes me feel in some way like I'm just this disembodied spirit out here, you know, talking through the airways. I can't wait till we have the opportunity to meet again. Well, if I feel that way about this shadow of a body, how much more invigorating it will be when we have our new bodies in the heavenly realm. You say, well, I don't know if I can believe that. I mean, I, that just seems so far, so such a far stretch for me. Well, let's read Romans 8, verse 11. Maybe this will just give you the faith that you need today. Romans 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through His Spirit which indwells you. What does that mean? He's saying, look, if, if God can raise Jesus, in other words, that was always the plan. That's the point. Jesus had the authority and the power to throw down his life and take it up again. Well, I have the authority to commit suicide and do away with my life, but in and of myself, I have no authority to take it up again. But if I have God's life on the inside of me, my heart is the Ark of the Covenant, and the manna is there, the God's Christ's words that give me faith and lead me to follow him, if that's there, that's significant. And obviously, if this resurrection life is in my heart, as typified by Aaron's rod budding, is there, and the law is written on my heart just the way God operates, well, of course, that means I have the, the Zoe kind of life 
And it means that's an indestructible life. There's no way that life will ever be destroyed. That's what Paul's saying here. And then finally, in closing, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, For indeed he was crucified because of our weakness, but he lives. Because of what? Because of the power of God. He had this power living in him. That's why he had the authority to take it up again. For we are also weak in him, yet we will live with him. Not, not a disembodied spirit or the idea of us, our real resurrected body. Why? Because of the power of God directed towards you, Paul says. And then he says this, and this is the key as we close. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Now, here's the thing, folks. I, I, I've got to tell you, th there's no more important question that you will ever be asked or answer. Paul gives us an ultimatum, and there's never a better time than this, this resurrection day, this weird 2020, not being able to meet physically day. I don't understand all this, but... Uh, I'm telling you, this could be the most significant moment in all of your life. Test yourselves to see if Christ lives in you. You say, well, I don't know if he does. Well, I can tell you, if you don't know if he does, chances are he may not. But I can tell you right now how you can get Christ's life to live on the inside of you, and I'm going to quote the Bible. There's no better thing just quote the Bible. Romans 10, starting in verse 8. It says, what does it say? The word is near you. That's, that's the manna, Right? The manna, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. He says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. And here it is, you ready? If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, not just created an identity that lived on some the spirit of Jesus living on in our hearts. No, raised him from the dead with a physical body. You will be saved. Why? Because with the heart, a person believes, and that results in right living, right standing before God. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Guys, look, it's been a hard month and a half. I mean, and we may have more in front of us. I don't know. But I can tell you this. And somebody, somebody sent me this really... Uh, wonderful thing. Uh, Rob sent me this the other day. He said, our churches may be empty, but guess what? So is the grave. If you believe that Jesus was the Messiah and you believe that he was raised from the dead, what did we just learn? It's going to lead to your salvation. It can't be more simple than that. For those of you who are celebrating, you're celebrating because, hey, his resurrection validated everything he said and and we're celebrating the fact not only that he was raised, but that we're going to be raised. But if you don't know that for sure, you can pray this simple prayer. Lord, I believe you. I trust. I, for some reason today, I have the faith that you were raised from the dead. I give my life to you. I want in my heart what was in the Ark of the Covenant. I want your word to begin to fill me. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to eat your words every day. I'm going to make it my whole life. And my life's ambition is no longer just chasing the buck or having a good time. I'm I'm going to take my life and I'm going to surrender it to you and I'm going to eat your words. I'm going to, and as I do, I realize that you're going to fill me with your spirit and you're going to begin to write your law in my heart. In other words, I'm not going to have to say, well, I really don't want to do that, but all right, it's the law. No, I'm going to begin to want to. I'm going to, want, I'm going to desire right things and not desire the wrong things. 
And then lastly, I'm going to carry around that staff that's budded. I'm going to carry around the very resurrected God life in me so that when I breathe my last, I know that it's only my last breath on this earth. The next breath I breathe will be in a new body and it will be on a new earth and a new heavens and a new earth. Now, folks, if you can't celebrate that, I I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Why? Because we're going to be resurrected. Well, I hope this uh, Easter message has been powerful for you. I know every time I read it, it reinvigorates me. It recommits me to Jesus. And we want you to know at Church at the Red Door and then our Church at the Red Door family, we want you to know we love you. We're here for you. If you've got questions or things that you want answered relating to this, send us an email at churchoftheredddoor.com. You can go on there and find our contact information. We'd love to take some next steps with you so that you can be confident that you have resurrected life. And not only this Easter, but next Easter, it'll be a celebration like you've never known. We love you and have a great, great Easter in the name of Jesus.